Well, good morning. My name is Bobby, and uh, I normally sing here a lot, but I'm so grateful to Sylvia that she's able to lead us. It's just so, it's pretty cool. I mean, I, I don't want to make a big deal of her age, but she's 20 years old and is leading us in singing praises to God, and it's just, I, I'm so grateful. Yeah, I'm grateful. Got a great team uh, doing that, so... Well, I'm glad that you're here. If you're new here, I want to say welcome. Uh, we are a, are, on paper, we say that we're a transforming uh, community of families that love God and others. And basically what that means is we're not perfect, but we know that we're being transformed, and so we're willing to engage in the conversation. Conversation of faith, the conversation of what God is doing, a conversation of what, uh, how this faith can become real and not just a thing that happens on Sunday. And so wherever you may be at right now, you may be showing up here for the first time saying, I want nothing to do with this, or maybe you're showing up here for the one millionth time, and maybe you're still saying, I want nothing to do with this. <laughs> Either way, we're glad you're here, because that contributes to the conversation. As we've been in this series of uh, Revealed, looking back into these stories of the Old Testament and how they point us to Jesus and how it's not this separate thing that happened way back there, and then there's this big divide, and then we get to the New Testament, the good stuff, Right? We're gonna, we've been looking at how it is completely woven together that we get to see how all these stories of, of the Old Testament actually point us to the truth of who Jesus is and how that can encourage our faith. Now, before we get too far into that right away, uh, a little bit of, of confession. No, I'm not checking Facebook or texting. I'm actually controlling my slides with my phone. Technology, ain't it grand? Uh, confession time, how many of you are maybe even a little bit addicted to the like home renovation shows on HGTV and yeah. Be honest, come on. There are so many of these shows. This is just a few on HG, HGTV. And there's other networks, the do-it-yourself network, the stuff that's on the, uh, the public channels as well. They're everywhere. There is something about like the, the, the restoring process and the story that's behind the, the renovation that we get sucked in and we get drawn into it and we say, yes, we get excited. And, you know, uh, yeah, you remember the, the extreme uh, makeover home edition? And they say, move that bus. They move that bus. You see this gorgeous house and people are weeping and crying and you're like, yes. We're drawn to restoration. We're drawn to seeing that completion of what was broken and, and bad or not working, being made right and being made whole again. I think there's something in us in the way that we were designed, the way God designed us to celebrate and be drawn towards restoration. Now, for some of you, maybe it's not homes. Maybe it's not, uh, you know, it, it might be like, you know, cars or boats or all these other things. I've got a little, this is some confession here. Um, and I see Molly here because she actually is kind of part of the story. Rob is, at least. Uh, when I was like 22, I bought a 1968 Chrysler Town and Country station wagon that I had to borrow money from Rob to buy and pay him back later. And I thought this was the coolest car. I wish this was the car. This is just pictures, but it looked exactly like this. And it was in fabulous condition. It was, it had a 383 four-barrel in it. I mean, this, this was the suburban of the day of 1968. This thing was 
awesome. And the guy that sold it to me, I mean, he totally hoodwinked me. I, I just was young and impressionable. I said, yeah, this would be cool. Okay, I'll buy it. And so it didn't take very long for me to realize I'm in over my head with the amount of restoration that this thing needs. It looked just, I mean, it looked that good. It really did. But you open the door and you could see in between the panels in the, you know, the thin part of the door that it was pretty much just rotted through. That there was just not much actually holding the car together. I actually uh, noticed that even when I was driving at home, that I was like, oh man, this thing is like, takes a lot to break. Like it doesn't slow down really well. And I was... <laughs> And I was thinking, oh, it's an old car, you know, whatever, just thinking that's just kind of the way they are. So I took it to a gas station to say, like, yeah, it just seems, you know, I don't know if the brakes need to be tightened up or something like that. And the guy came back and said, like, you, you have no brakes. There's nothing there. There's, you, you absolutely have to do everything on these. And it was like, you know, $600. And I'm like, I don't have $600. And he's like, but you can't drive it away from here. I literally had to sign a waiver to, for them to say, like, we told you that this car is unsafe to drive, but you're choosing to drive it anyway, so you need to sign your life away because we told you so. That was basically what I had to sign, and I was like, okay. Ended up getting the brakes fixed, but... Uh, and then the other thing was, too, there was... Uh, this thing was huge, and it was literally longer than a Chevy Silverado, and uh, it had bench seats. It didn't have the third row, the rear-facing, which is a bummer, but it had power seats, in 1968, power seats, the whole bench would go inside for it. It was, it was really loud and really obnoxious. Uh, but one day I was like cleaning some stuff out of the car or whatever, and there was like a floor mat that was clearly like aftermarket. It wasn't an original floor mat or anything that was just draped across the whole length of the, you know, the car. And as I'm picking stuff up, I happen to like pick that up and move it, and I am looking at the road. And I said, oh, no, <laughs> like, I am in trouble. Like, this, this is not going to go well. And so I ended, up, I ended up trading it in for a purple minivan, but that's another story. We'll come back to that some other day and have that confession time uh, on another story. Uh, but it did not take very long for me to realize I cannot do this. Now, how about you? Now, again, let's kind of go back to the, 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 the fixer-uppers that are in here. How many of you, and again, let's be honest here, how many of you are the, like, never-ending fixer? There's always a project. There's always a thing. There's always a garden that could be built. There's always a room that could be redone. There's always some paint that could be put on the walls. There's, there's a, a wall that can come down to create more room. There's always, how many of you are, the, are that guy or that gal? That's always fixing something. Always. It's just never, never, ever ending. Yeah, there's, 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 a, there's a lot of you. Now, how many of you, now I, I kind of fall into this category, that you may have some of those thoughts. You may have some of those intentions to say like, oh, yeah, hey, this would be a really great idea if we did this. But you do nothing. That would be, that's what I call so. Okay, I mean, we're very vulnerable here. Uh, it was a few years ago, for my wife's birthday, for Harper's birthday, all I got her was a card. And in that card, it just said, hey, for your birthday, I'm going to build you a garden. Do we have a garden in our yard? <laughs> no, we do. We do not. 
So let's just say that that season for our marriage was difficult. <laughs> and, but it speaks to that where it's like, I, I had the best intentions in the world, but never actually did any of the work. And then there's probably some of you that are just absolutely clueless that there's even a need for something to be repaired. You might be like living in your house saying like, yep, house is in original condition for the last 50 years, having to do anything to it. It'd be like, dude, your roof is literally falling off. That's fine. There might be some of you that kind of fall into that court. Whether it's out of just straight up denial or maybe just ignorance. Maybe you just don't see it. But either way, all of us are constantly interacting with this uh, with this, this idea of restoration. So we're going to take a, a, a dive into this idea of restoration. And I'm, I, wanna, I want to encourage you, I'm going to kind of give it to you straight right away, that the, the hope of our time here is to encourage you to say, God is a God of restoration, not you. You fixer-uppers, you well-intended, or you, those of you that are completely in denial, regardless, it's not your job. God is a God of restoration. He is the one that will restore. And as we look at this, we're going to look at it through three uh, kind of ways. Honesty, opposition, and surrender. We're going to break those down later. But to help us tell the story and to help us get our arms around this idea of restoration, we're going to look at the story of Nehemiah. Again, the story from the Old Testament. Some of you may know the story of Nehemiah. Others of you don't. I would encourage you to uh, read it in your Bibles. It's 13 chapters. It's not too long. There's lots of names uh, because there's a lot of people that helped build this wall. So you might read quickly uh, if you do what I do. <laughs> but Nehemiah starts, to give the backdrop, Nehemiah was fulfilling a prophecy, a prophecy, a prophecy that Jeremiah had actually given because he told the nation of Israel, just so you know, guys, it's going to get bad. It's going to get really bad. It's going to get dark. It's going to get desolate. And the walls of the city are going to be torn down. But God is going to be the one that restores it. And he said, for 70 years, you're going to be in this darkness. And if you look at the timeline, as far as when Nehemiah was written and the time that Jeremiah gave that prophecy, it was exactly the time when it was 70 years had been finished, and now this restoration project was going to be given. You see, because Nehemiah was born in, most likely, was born in captivity, meaning that while the Jews were enslaved in Egypt, he was probably born during that time, and so he actually was raised in that culture, and he became prominent and became the cupbearer to the king. So he was that guy, like these guys really existed, that was like, hold on, king, let me try that for you just in case somebody poisoned it. There you go. You're good to go. So it's a big deal. You had to be a trusted person to do that because it would be very easy for, for that cupbearer to be the one to poison it and say, it's fine. So it was a, it was a big deal for, for the position that he had. Now, those that were actually living within the walls of Jerusalem were those that survived captivity. And they were in bad shape. They were susceptible to war. They were susceptible to the, to the areas around them. And again, like the prophecy that Jeremiah had told them, it was dark. It was bad times all around. And so Jeremiah, or, uh, Nehemiah gets wind of how bad the condition Jerusalem is in. And it breaks his heart. 
And he is weeping and mourning over his, uh, his kin, over his family, over his people, even though he is living in this relatively comfortable life. His heart is absolutely broken for his people. And he obviously had done a really good job with the king because he was so sad about it that the king noticed and basically said, what's up with you? Normally you're this happy guy. Why the long face? So he tells them, my people are in trouble. And the king says, what do you need? And he prayed, uh, Nehemiah had been praying that God would give him favor in the eyes of the king. And so the king says, what do you need? And he says, well, if you could let me go to my people. He says, okay, you can go to your people. You're probably going to need safe passage there, so I'll give you all the passports that you need so that the other cities don't go after you, that I'm giving you this decree to go. When you're probably going to need food, so we'll make sure that you get all the rations that you need to make sure that you can make the trip and, serve, and do what you need to do right there. You're going to be building a wall, you say? Well, you're probably going to need supplies. So I'm going to give you all the wood and all the tools and everything that you would need and the contractors and the laborers to make sure that you can uh, start this project. How much time do you need? Sure, you can have that. So absolutely just found favor with the king, and the king gave him everything that he needed to go and begin this journey and this process of restoring the walls of Jerusalem so that their security and their sense of identity can be restored. It's an amazing, an amazing story. Now, you might be thinking, some of you might be thinking, like, it's, is, is it really that big of a deal? So you built some walls. We've all watched those shows. It's like, okay, cool. So you redid the walls, and I'm sure it looks good. And some of you might be thinking kind of like medieval times, you know, where there's like armies coming in with catapults with balls of fire being launched over walls and people on top of the walls with like, you know, boiling tar going blah. And, and like, and I'm sure there was probably some of that going on, but walls had so much more significance to the story than just a barrier for battle. You see, walls, here in Proverbs, you see, this is... King Solomon says, like, a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Walls were a symbol of their identity. Walls was a, a symbol, a representation of God's promise to them for their salvation. It was a symbol of how he would provide for them. It was a symbol of how he would rescue them. And so when you start to see this picture, they identified their own lives, their spirituality, their faith, and their trust in God was symbolized by these walls that were built around the city. So when you tear down the walls around the city, there is no hope, there is no faith, there is no trust, there is no God. It was a big deal that these walls were broken. And you can see now why Nehemiah, even though he was not raised in that city, he was raised in privilege, but his heart, his family, were from Jerusalem. He was, uh, he was a Jew. That was his people. That when he heard that the walls were down, he said, what are we going to do? This is really, really bad news. This is a picture of, um, where'd it go? Yeah. of the actual eastern gate. Troy gave me this when uh, he went there. So there was all these gates. So these were the appropriate places that, you know, people or things or goods could get in. And there's lots of language throughout 
um, the Old Testament as well. You know, in, in Psalms you see, enter his gates with thanksgiving. The gates were the symbol of the interaction with God, with praise. And the walls were the symbol of salvation and rescue and hope. So this gate was sealed up by the, the Muslims, and the Muslims actually put a, a graveyard in front of the gate because the Jews will not walk through a graveyard. And so it was kind of this like, you know, we're going to stick it to you. You say your Jesus is coming back because Jesus said he's going to return through the eastern gate. And this was their attempt to say, well, we'll see about that. I'm excited to see how that plays out. <clears throat> So walls were a very big deal. The restoration of these walls specifically meant the return of hope, the return of God's promise, the return of God's faithfulness, and ultimately their rescue, delivery, and salvation. So what about you? What comes to your mind when you see this word restoration? Uh, again, doesn't have to be a wrong or right answer. Just for some of you, it might be more of a physical sense of, you know, fixing a building or restoring a car. Some of you might be more spiritual. Uh, Dictionary.com, one of the um, uh, definitions says this a return of something to a former original, normal, or unimpaired condition. And I loved that because I feel like that that speaks so much to our faith as Christians. Jesus said, behold, I am making all things new again. He is the original designer of us, of this world. And he says, I'm going to restore it. I've got the blueprints I'm the one that's going to be able to, to bring this thing back to the original design, the original design to be in relationship with God in heaven for eternity. And Jesus is the one that's going to be uh, bringing that about. And so you can see this parallel between Nehemiah and Jesus starting to take shape and starting to, to form. So Nehemiah... This is in the beginning of the story when he says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He says, I went to Jerusalem, and this is after he's gone to, the, to Jerusalem. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. So already you see Nehemiah in a place of privilege at the right hand of the king being given the blessing to go and have his heart broken for his people that were lost and begin a work of salvation and restoration. So we see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father with all of the perfect union with the Father being sent down the earth with the blessing of God. This is my son whom I am well pleased. Having his heart broken for his people that are lost. As he wept in the garden of Gethsemane. 
ultimately to give himself so that that relationship can be restored. We can see these two tracks playing out. But the important thing that we want to look at right now for, for Nehemiah is that restoration requires honesty. See, honesty, uh, honesty with the condition of the way things are is going to set the tone for the kind of restoration that we begin to enter into. Because, again, he's removed. He's out in the, you know, with the king of Persia. He could have said, the walls are torn down. Bummer. But again, he knew the significance of what that meant, and it broke his heart. And then, as that passage says, he went to Jerusalem, and he didn't just say like, hey guys, I'm here to save the day, let's start building, let's start swinging hammers, let's do this, come on guys. He went and he quietly and silently surveyed the condition of the walls. For three days, he just observed and just took it in so that he could feel the weight of how bad it really was. And then he went to the Jewish leaders and said, guys, we have a problem. And they said, let's get to work. And the building started. But it required that honest position of the condition of uh, their, you know, their reality. And in the same way that we survey the condition of our hearts so that we can say we are in incredible need of restoration. I remember when Derek Webb came and performed here one time, he said, you know, however bad you think your sin is, it is so much worse. (laughs) And it's true. The more that we see the goodness of God, the more we start to feel how our sin separates us from him. And that not only do we feel that way, but then that makes forgiveness and grace and mercy that much more beautiful as we enter into that. And in Ephesians, Paul reminds us of this too. In Ephesians 2.1, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins. A dead person is not going to be able to fix themselves. A dead person is not going to be able to to somehow either will themselves with good intentions or with good deeds or with a really good work ethic, restore new life. Paul's trying to reiterate the condition, how bad it really is. You can't do it. You're dead in your sins. You need a Savior to come in and breathe new life into you. So restoration requires honesty, and restoration is also always under opposition. So what do I mean by that? Well, if we look at the story of Nehemiah, as he was building these walls, there was these characters that popped up that were trying to stop him, that were trying to throw off the plans. There's this character named Sanballat. I don't know. I don't know where that comes from. Sanballat, whatever. But his name actually means hatred in secret. And his kind of approach to this whole thing, so Nehemiah is recounting Sanballat's uh, interaction with him. And he says, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he became very angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the the Jews. What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Can you hear the sarcasm? 
Can you hear the digging, the divisiveness, the constantly pointing back to the hopelessness of what their situation is? You can't do that. You won't have time. You don't have the ability. You don't have what it takes. We have a very real enemy that is similar to Sanballat in Satan himself. Now, I get weirded out when we try to make things too, you know, overly spiritual and, uh, you know, pointing out the devil made me do it. You know, that kind of, I'm, I'm really reluctant to do that. However, any of you ever see Usual Suspects? Awesome movie. Remember what that quote in there? This is the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world he didn't exist. And so we, we need to at least be conscious and be very aware that we have a very real enemy in Satan himself. And we see that played out in the story of Nehemiah through this character in uh, Sanballat. Constantly trying to divide, point back to their brokenness, and, and destroy their hope. You can't do that. There's another character that brings about opposition named Geshem. Now, he is just a small little part in this, but it's very interesting. Now, his name means corporealness. I didn't know what that was, so I had to look it up. And it basically just means the physical, material, uh, tangible things. So in the story where we see Geshem, so this is Sanballat. Sanballat, as the wall was being being built, he continued to send letters to Nehemiah. He sent letters saying, hey, come out from behind those walls and let's, let's talk. We'll have, a, we'll have a little chat about this with the intention to kill him. But he kept trying to lure him out from behind the walls. So this was his fifth letter that he sent, and he's ratcheting it up a little bit here. And Sambalat says, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king knowing that Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king of Persia and even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come on, let's talk. So he is trying to manipulate him to get out from behind those walls so that he can destroy him. And he's trying to create fear in him to say, if the king finds out that you're going to be a king, he's going to kill you. And so, but this little part about Geshem is so fascinating because Geshem plays the role of the world. So I'm hearing these reports and Geshem says it's true. Everybody else is saying it too. This world, this outside forces, all these voices are saying this too. This isn't just me saying this, Nehemiah. Everybody else is. We have these voices from outside that don't believe, that don't share the hope that may try to sway or discard or discredit the restoration process, the restoration project that God is doing in us. The last character that we see that opposes Nehemiah is a guy named Tobiah. Now his name means Jehovah is good. Now Jehovah is a name for God. So why is a guy whose name, Jehovah is good, one of the ones that are opposing Nehemiah? It's confusing. In uh, the story, Tobiah the Ammonite, who is at his side, his is Sanballat. So he's literally at, like, right next to Sanballat, uh, was at his side and said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their walls of stones. You can almost tell that he's kind of the, like, 
the weak henchmen like trying to get in on it too. Like, yeah, what he said. Come on, even a, even a, a fox would, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like a, you know, he's trying to add his little dig and it's kind of like, yeah, that's not really working. That's not, not, very, not very believable. But the interesting thing about him is that Tobiah, he married into, uh, whoops, he married into the, uh, the Jewish culture. So he was one of them. He was part of the, 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 the Jews. And yet he's this voice of opposition in creating dissension. And so he represents something that is true in all of us, our sinful nature. The liar within the one that is trying to tell you, your, you know, the, 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 the compulsion to want to not do it, the compulsion to say, I can't, or the compulsion to say, I can do it myself, and I don't need any other help. Either way, our sinful nature is represented in this character of Tobiah. And so restoration requires honesty. Restoration is always under opposition. And it can only happen by surrender. You can only enter into restoration through surrender. When Nehemiah prayed, when he first heard about the condition of Jerusalem, he said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive. Well, now, one little nugget here before we move on. I thought this, this was just fascinating. Again, to speak of how desperate the times were, when you read in, Je- in Genesis and they referred to the God of heaven, they often said the God of heaven and earth. And yet now, God had been absent from them. The times were so dark that they no longer referred to him as the God of earth. We said, we still have faith in you, but you're there. You're not here with us. There was no representation of God on earth. There was no Moses. There was no Abraham. There was no Noah. It was dark. So they said, okay, no longer is it God of heaven and earth. It's God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant, still have a lot of faith in him, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive. And then he goes on to say, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. He identifies himself with his people that have gone astray. Again, he didn't necessarily participate in that. And yet he took on the case of his people. So again, we see Jesus living in privilege with God in heaven taking on the case of those that have sinned against God. He himself knew no sin, and yet he took on the case of those that did sin against God, and he became sin. So here Nehemiah is associating that. He's he's giving us this picture of what Jesus would ultimately do one day. And in 2 Corinthians Oh, is it going to go? There we go. 
2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Restoration is salvation. So it requires honesty. It's always under opposition. And it can only happen by surrender. So where are you at right now in your story of restoration? As God has promised that he's going to be the one that restores. Are you the fixer-upper that is constantly trying to keep yourself busy with self-improvement? That is constantly trying to find the new thing that you can tackle that's going to somehow get you some enlightenment as to who God is, as to who you are, as that your contribution in, in this earth has significance in and of yourself? Surrender, you fixer-uppers, <laughs> and say, I can't do it. It is not by my work, but by the work of Jesus alone that will bring about the restoration that I so long for. What about those of you with your good intentions and lack of effort? We need to surrender those intentions because, again, it's a similar mindset as the thinking like, hey, there's all these things going on, but then the next step for us is to confess our apathy. Say, God, I know that you are calling me into this relationship with you and my refusal to even take a step is just wrong. I think I have the right ideas, but I'm just in concrete and not doing anything. And he will meet you there and say, let's step together. And for those of you that maybe you just don't know, maybe you walked in here today without any realization of the condition of your heart, of the condition of your sin, of the condition of your soul, and you are just getting introduced to this right now. For you to take the bold step to say, I need help. I had no idea how bad it really was. That I am in need of restoration. And for you too to take a step. Now we believe in... Uh, providing opportunities for people to take steps of faith because we know that it's not, there's not any one thing that's going to be this magic bullet because we're going to continue to fall. Our walls are going to continue to be broken. The unfortunate thing about the story of Nehemiah is that the walls get rebuilt. There's huge feasts. They worship in the temple. Hope is renewed. Faith in God has been restored. They say, yes, we are victorious. They make promises and covenants with God to say, we will never intermarry. We will never let the house of the Lord be uh, unkept. We will, and they go down this list of all these things they're going to do. That's in like chapters 11 and 12. Chapter 13 is the last book. There's the last chapter in the book of Nehemiah. Guess what? 
Exactly. It breaks. They start to intermarry. They start to leave the temple. They start to, and Tobiah is instrumental in that. He is one of the ones that starts to bring about this intermarrying with people from outside in there. So this one that was kind of saying, you know, because he, he actually started to earn favor with the Jews. Because once he saw that it was being built, he kind of said like, hey, hey, I'm one of the good guys. I'm one of you. And yet he was the one that started to bring about the division. And we see the Jewish people start to turn their back again. Isn't that true of us? How many times do we say, God, I'll never do that again? And we try to take the responsibility on ourselves. We try to be the one that's going to restore it. I promise I won't do that again. And we become the fixer-upper. And then when it all falls apart, we, we survey the condition again. And we go, oh, it's bad. I need help. I need a savior. So one of the things that we offer here, because we believe that just taking a step, wherever you're at, Taking a step, a small step as, as opening your Bible and reading it. Beginning to, 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 to test uh, giving. To join a group. To see what it's like to, to participate in communion and identify with Jesus' sacrifice. One of the greatest, uh, most celebratory things that we do here is baptism. Because that is where we can see people saying, Yes to the need for restoration. The symbol of baptism is death to the old self and new life in Christ. That we are identifying with his resurrection because he promised us on the cross when he defeated death, he said, you will too. You will join me in resurrection. The water doesn't do that. Jesus does. But we get to identify with that hope. We get to say, yes, that is true. And I too believe that Jesus is the one that brings restoration, and I'm going to identify myself with him. I can't do it alone. I can't fix my own heart. I can't gain uh, and work my way into heaven. But through life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I can. And so for some of you, you knew about baptisms this week, and you planned on doing that, and we are so excited that you are going to be doing that. And for some of you, you might be stirring right now in your seats. Because we believe that an act of the Holy Spirit doesn't need a class to prepare you. Because some of you need to get up in your Sunday best right now and identify with the one that can restore your soul. So you may not have been planning on it, but you need to respond. So as, as the band comes out and Sylvia is going to lead us in some more singing, because when people identify with Christ like that, we celebrate. And we sing and we say, praise God. And so for those of you that know that you are going to be baptized, I encourage you to make your way forward and our, our elders are going to help with it. And for those of you that might be kind of going, I have this funny feeling, I would encourage you to ask God, God, give me the courage Give me the words, get my feet out of the concrete so that I can take a step towards you. There's no uh, spiritual hoop you have to jump through to identify with Christ in that way. And so let's, uh, let's pray together and then we're going to sing and those of you that are going to be baptized, uh, 
You can make your way forward. God, thank you so much for how you are a God of restoration. That you hold the blueprints to our original design of being in relationship with you, free of sin, free of hurt, free of pain, free of brokenness. We thank you that you have given us pictures of how you're going to do that in stories like Nehemiah and how you ultimately have done that through Jesus. And so, God, as we take steps towards you right now, we celebrate the victory that we have in you. We confess our need for you. We confess that we can't do it on our own, that we are completely dependent on you. And we also are completely trusting in the promises that you gave your people, both in the Old Testament and the New, that you will be our God, that you will be our deliverer, that you will be our rescue, that you alone will be our salvation. We thank you, God, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.